This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I want you to get your Bibles out, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis here for a little while, and I'm not going to go through all of these. I hope that you can see them up on the board when we turn over there. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm probably not going to turn to all of them. But I want to I kind of start out and, and set the stage. You know, when we're young, our parents tell us Bible stories and they read to us and they prepare us for life by doing the simple things of the Scripture so that we can understand it, we can appreciate it, we can begin to put it into our, our hearts and our minds and we can begin to think about godly things. And so I would... I would dare to say probably everyone here has a favorite Bible account that was given to you by your parents when you were young. And I'm going to tell you mine, and I don't know that it matters, but mine was the, 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 the snake of brass. My mom had a Bible that was about this, it was huge, and it had pictures in some of it, and one of the pictures it had was the brass snake. And everybody's getting bit by snakes, and they're dying, and they look to this this brass snake and they're saved and I thought it was so amazing and, and I still have a phobia of snakes so I don't know that I got what I was supposed to get but we all have that and so as we grow and as we learn about God's word and as we study those scriptures and we learn more accounts in the Bible we grow fonder and fonder of the things we find there they're like treasure building up in our heart and you know, we find champions in there, don't we? We find individuals in Scripture that mean so much to us and they give us the hope each day. They give us the courage to go out and do the things that we need to do. And we think about those things regularly and we say, well, if they could do it, we could do it. Surely. Surely we could do better than we're doing. I don't do this and I don't do that and I wish I did better. Just like such and such in Scripture. But you know, a lot of times when we look at the whole story and the whole account, there's some things that are not real pretty in there, aren't they? So I want to ask you, what do God's champions look like in your mind this morning? Is it even possible for you or I to be one of those champions? Or are these people in Scripture simply amazing and above and beyond? So I want us to look at some things this morning in Scripture and maybe compare that not to do harm to God's champions at all, but to see some things that they were real people. They were real people with real problems. But through God, they were amazing. So I want to talk about Jacob for just a minute. And I'm not going to read all this because there's a lot of reading. But if you want to read a really interesting story, you can start in Genesis chapter 35 and you can read all the way through chapter 37. And you're going to see a lot of things happen there. But because of our lesson this morning, I want to focus on some things here. And I've got where they're at so you can go back and look at them. But Jacob starts out and he cheats his brother out of his birthright. And you're probably very familiar with this story. But he's cooking one day. He's making pottage, lentils. And it's got red meat in it. And he's cooking this up. And Esau, his brother, 
He's been out hunting and apparently he'd been out there quite some time because it says he was nigh unto death. So I guess he thought he was literally starving to death, or at least that's the way he made it sound. And he comes in and he says, man, brother, give me some of that. And Jacob says, hey, I'll give it to you, but you got to give me your, your birthright. And Esau, he's just a very sporadic man. He was a warrior. He was a hunter. He lived off the land. He says, well, what good's my birthright if I die? So he gives it to him. And so for a, a bowl of lentils, I think you've heard that before in a lesson or two or three or 20, he gives up that birthright. He deceives his father. Uh, later, he goes in, his mother tells him how to do it, and he gets some goat skins and he ties them on, he puts them on, and his father's older, he can't see, he's wearing his brother's clothes so he smells like his brother. And his brother, I mean his dad even makes the point. This feels like Esau, it smells like Esau, but it sounds like Jacob. But he went ahead and he gave him the birthright. And, and we know that he barely got out of there by the time Esau showed up and found out he'd lost his birthright. So he deceived his father into thinking he was his brother. And so he did some, some crazy stuff with the help of his mother back then. And then he gets older and uh, he has sent away to some of the relatives' place so that he can find a, a wife. And he finds one. And he, man, he loves her. He's smitten. You know how these boys walk around, these young guys at church, and when they hit that girlfriend and, and it's somebody in the church, and boy, they get smitten, don't they? I kind of remember some of these young men sitting over here when they were smitten. They walked around on air and they were bulletproof. Well, that's what Jacob was doing. And he found, he found uh, the woman of his dreams. And so... He makes an agreement with her dad and he's going to work seven years and he's going to get this woman of his dreams as a bride. And so he works and he works hard and he does that and it's time for him to get his wife and they, they prepare the ceremony and they have it at night and he goes in to uh, have his first night of his honeymoon with his wife and he wakes up the next morning and he's, he's married the sister. I want you to think about that a minute. You think that might cause a little bit of crazy? You wake up with the wrong lady at your wedding? He did. And I think it caused a little crazy. He come out of that tent and he wasn't happy. He wanted to know, what have you done to me? And we know Laban said, well, you know, our custom, we can't, we can't give away the younger daughter before the older. So he says, you know, if you'll take care of things and you'll take care of Leah, uh, then I will, and you work another seven years, I'll give you Rachel. And so they're working on this deal. Now I understand there's some question about timing, and I've learned my entire life that he worked another seven years and then got her. But it says a week. Laban said to give Rachel, or give Leah her week, and then he would give him, I'm sorry, give Leah her week, and then he would give him Rachel. He either got her a week later or he got her seven years later. Either way, he had two wives. Now, I don't know about you. I, I'm just being honest. I, it's all I can do to keep up with my wife. And it's not because she's bad. It's, it's a lot, isn't it? They got a lot of things for expectations of husbands, right? Well, now we got two, two wives. Not only we got two wives, they're sisters. 
I don't know if you've thought about that, but that could get a little bit, well, it'd be a whole lot awkward. And it'd be a lot tricky to keep everybody happy, wouldn't it? And so what happens? It, did, it didn't stay happy. Leah takes off having kids, boom, 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 just like clockwork. And she's having all these sons, and Rachel's not having any kids at all. And though there's a lot of jealousy, so here comes Rachel, and she tries to help God out, and she says, hey, I'm going to give you my handmaid, boom. He gets, he gets a handmaid that's a half-sister. Now he got three sisters. It's getting pretty weird, isn't it? It's pretty strange, but he's got it now, and he's dealing with it, and he's trying to do his best to keep them all happy and not let them rip him to shreds. And, and, and here comes Leah. She decides she needs to help him out, and she throws him another handmaid. He got four wives now. And he's got kids just coming and going and he's got a schedule who, which tent he sleeps in and, and who's, who's in front of who and who's behind who. The poor guy is trying to go out and make a living and he's got to figure out where he's going to sleep at night. It's just crazy. But he makes it work. So later on, one of his daughters from Leah, Dinah, is out and these other guys come along and they commit a terrible atrocity. And she's raped. It's a bad deal. Families tore up, upset. Obviously, who wouldn't be? Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of grief, a lot of anger. Jacob's trying to keep everybody under control. And his two sons go out and they deceive the family of the rapist. And they end up killing them all. All the men. They don't just kill the rapist. They kill all his family. All, all of those men. And it was, it was not good. It was not good. So now we got, we got deceit going on. We got deceit happening to Jacob. We got lots of, of wives and, and crazy from that. And jealousy. And now we've got the two sons that went out and committed this murder. And it was an eye for an eye. So they killed them all so they couldn't come back with revenge, right? So they, they just murdered them. Family problems later... Because these, these sons are, are half-brothers. They're not full because they have different moms, right? And there's, you know, all of them are out there. And then Joseph ends up telling them about a dream he had and what happens. These brothers get jealous and they sell him into slavery. All this happens. Crazy, chaos, bad things, hardships, lying, deceit. And then you come down here to Genesis 32, 27, and God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and that's where we get the children of Israel. You see, Jacob was just an ordinary man, and he, had, he even had above ordinary problems, didn't he? He had some things we don't even think about, but with God, he became extraordinary. He was transformed. And he transformed the history of God's people in Scripture for you and I. He truly made a difference in life. Now then, we come to Rahab the harlot. This was a woman that made her living as a prostitute. And we talk about her quite a bit. But we just glance right past this real fast. It's not something pretty. It's not something... 
we, we stay on too long. And it's certainly probably not if she would have, would have known that thousands of years later she would be known as Rahab the harlot after she changed her life probably would embarrass her a little bit, wouldn't it? Sometimes it embarrasses us just to talk about it. But we know that she was in the city and we know that she hid the spies that God had told them to send in and check out the city that they were going to take with God's help. And in Hebrews 11 and 31 it says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So these spies came in and they were looking at the city and they were found out. And so they were looking for a place to hide from the soldiers that were going to kill them. And I have no idea if they knew where they were going, what they were doing. God's providence, but they went into this place where Rahab had her place of business and she hid them. And it says she had received the spies with peace. You know, she had heard of God. She knew, was familiar with Him. She was familiar with the, the, the act that was going to take place, that they were going to take this city. And she believed that God's people were the real deal and that God Almighty was God Almighty. And so she, she did this act of kindness and she saved these men and she made a deal to save her family when the, when the city was taken. So again, we see someone that had faith in God and in faith in the promises that he made and the actions he was going to take. And someone that was very deep into sin was made extraordinary with God's help. She ended up being in the lineage of Jesus. We don't read about the rest of her life, but we know that there were good things there. We know that she changed and she brought about a godly life over time. And certainly that's what we all try to do as we make mistakes in our life. Next, let's turn over to uh, Luke, the 19th chapter. Sorry. Luke 19, verses 2 through 7. It says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up, and he saw him, and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. So we have Jesus passing through there, and we have Zacchaeus, and it says he, he was trying to see, but he couldn't see because he was little in stature. And you know, sometimes I think we don't truly appreciate the finer details. So you go to Guyman, Oklahoma. I, I spend some time up there now for work. And I walk into Walmart, and there's all these people about that tall. They're little of stature. Now if you want to, I don't consider myself to be extremely tall. I'm about 5'11", 
maybe 5'10". Now as I get older, I don't know. But I don't consider myself to be tall, but you feel pretty tall when everybody in there is this tall. And I don't know what country they come from. They, they talk a foreign language that I don't know. But I thought, you know, this would be kind of like running into Zacchaeus because I, I mean, there's literally thousands of them that live there, I guess, because every time I go to Walmart, at least half the people in there are no taller than that. And it doesn't matter if they're male or female. It's kind of interesting to me. Well, Zacchaeus, he was short like that, and he was trying to find his way to, to be able to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to that place and he looked up and saw Zacchaeus hanging in this tree, he told him to make haste and come down and he needed to go to his house. And we know that these religious people thought that he was a sinner because he was a tax collector. And all tax collectors got to be sinners, right? It's kind of like attorneys. You ever heard a good joke about an attorney? You know, most of them are not good. And I, I got a lot of friends that are attorneys, and I deal with a lot of attorneys. They don't necessarily, as a whole industry, have a great reputation, right? Even though some of them have great reputations. Well, this is the same thing with Zacchaeus. Because he was a tax collector, he had to be a bad sinner, according to the religious people of that time. But we know that if you go over there and you read that story... You find out that he says, I've never taken anything that I shouldn't take. I give, I give money to those in need. He, he lays out all of these things that he does. He wants Jesus to know, I'm not who they say I am. And up until that day, I would say that unless they were, he was their tax collector, they probably hadn't paid Zacchaeus a lot of attention. He was, a little, he was just a little small guy that was out there. And the less you had to do with him, the better. And yet when he came in contact with Jesus, his Savior, he was noticed a lot more, wasn't he? Now they might have been using him and might have been saying he was a sinner because they wanted to get at Jesus. But Zacchaeus was even more well known after that time than before. And it wasn't necessarily, at least not with Jesus, because he didn't contradict him when he told him these things that he was doing that were good. You ever heard somebody talk bad about somebody that you knew personally that was actually a good person? But someone's just nagging and tearing them down? True story. I was going to be an ag teacher. And I went and student taught, and I won't say where. But after I went into the teacher's lounge and I heard them ripping each other to shreds, whoever walked out first became the next victim. I didn't want to be there anymore. I said, between having to buy extremely high dollar animals and take a chance of getting creamed there and walking out of the teacher's lounge and get creamed there, I didn't see much good that I could do there. But I could come out with a lot of bad. Just honest, being honest. I never used my ag ed because of the way these people backbite on each other. You think there could be some of that kind of stuff in situations like these? Maybe assumptions made. But you know, Jesus just cut through all that. He just went straight to Zacchaeus, said, I need to go to your house, and they did. And so Zacchaeus might have been an everyday individual, and he might not have been thought real highly upon. But with Jesus, he became an extraordinary man, a little short man that climbed a tree to be near his Savior. And you and I read about him thousands of years later. Pretty interesting. 
What about the woman caught in adultery? If we turn over to John 8, verses 3 and 4, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's a mob. They've grabbed this lady. Says it was in the very act, but they didn't grab a man. Got to be two for that, right? Where was he? Who was he? I find that interesting. You know, I just found out in Plainview, Texas, they, there was a building that used to be a car dealership, and uh, it got busted for prostitution. And it's on the main street of town. And I, I never heard a thing about it. It never made the news. When I heard that, I went and talked to one of my cop buddies just to ask him. I said, did, did this happen? He said, well, yeah, but he said, you know, there's some people in there that didn't need to be in there and didn't need to be in the paper. And I said, huh, ain't that something? Didn't even tell nobody about it because of who was in there. But they run the, they run the rest of them out of town. Uh, I didn't even know we had anything like that. I was a little shocked, to be honest with you. But I thought it was interesting. It depended on who they were. You reckon that might be something to do with this story? Caught her in the very act, but they didn't bring who she was in the act with. So here she is, and they want Jesus to do something. So picking up in verse 7, it says, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman, standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So here we have a woman... Obviously caught in a bad situation. She's brought to Jesus. We know that if we read more in there, they were trying to trap him and see what he would do. And he just turned it around on them. And he said, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. So not only was this lady in a bad shape, she was being used for the wrong reason. They didn't bring the entire situation to Jesus. But what did Jesus do with that situation? Did he just say, well, the sin's no big deal? Not at all. He said, go and sin no more. But what else did he do? He used a woman's bad spot in life, the sin that she was caught in, and all of this situation, and he taught a bunch of people a very important lesson. Cast the first stone. You know, in my life and being in younger years especially, I was guilty of that. It's easy to cast stones, isn't it? Not literally, physically, but spiritually. Have a hard time with people because you know something about where they've been and what they've done. We're very quick to judge unless it's our own. You know, a lot of times when it's our own, we just want everybody to look the other way. We don't want them. 
to talk about these things. We want to move through it quickly. Let's get it out of the way. But then at other times, we think we need to wall our people around in it. We need to make sure that they understand the price that they're going to pay if they don't toe the line. And I think Jesus knew that. And I think he wanted to warn us that we need to be very careful about the way we treat others. Do we show them love and kindness and give them hope of a future that is without sin, that is with walking with Jesus? Or do we simply want them to leave and be no more? These are things that come into our mind at times. These are, hopefully they don't come into yours. Let's say they come into mine. Let's do that so I don't get in trouble with a broad brush. But I hope that we learn over time that our job is to seek and save those that are lost, those that are in need, and to help them to a better place with God. What about Simon the sorcerer? If we turn to Acts the 8th chapter, in verse 9 it said, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. And he bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he, that he himself was of some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the, is the great power of God. And to him they had regard. Because of that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And he wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So now we have Simon the sorcerer passing himself off as being from God, and he bewitched the people. You ever looked up that word bewitched? I, I kind of thought I knew what it was, but I, I was looking at that, and it's to take people's eyes off of something else and put them somewhere different. He was bewitching people from being, paying attention to other things around them and paying attention to him. And they had regard to him. He amazed them. They could not answer how he did the things that he did. And he even allowed them to think he was from God. Now I think as we get more mature as Christians, this would be more grievous to me. A man letting himself be looked at as a man of God when he wasn't. That's pretty serious grievance, isn't it? We would take that very personally. And we know that Simon messed up not too long after this and he wanted to buy the miraculous gifts of God so that he could do them. He made his living bewitching them. He was a total fraud. But when the gospel was preached unto him, it changed his life. Did he change overnight? Did he get it all right, right from the start? We know he didn't. Because we know he tried to buy the miracles. He tried to be that somebody again. He reverted back to that way to make money. But we know he didn't stay there long because he was rebuked by the apostles. And he begged them to pray for him. Scared him to death. That he had walked close with God and all of a sudden he'd fell off the path. 
They told him to pray and he didn't even want to do the prayer himself. He wanted them to pray for him. God's word is powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can change the unchangeable. It can make things amazing that are ordinary. It can turn a life of dismal misery into joy and peace. What about John the Baptist? He dwelt in the desert. He wore a camel hair vest and he ate locusts. If we look in Matthew the third chapter starting in verse 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who ha- that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So here's a guy that lives in the desert. He wears a camel hair vest. He wears a leather girdle. Uh, and he eats locusts and wild honey. No doubt he, had a, he probably had a big burly beard. He certainly didn't have a mirror, did he? And he lived out in the wilderness. And he lived off the land. He was a little scary. You, you think, we don't get to hear about too many clothes that people wear in the Bible. Most of the time that's irrelevant. But in this story we're told he wore a camel hair vest, a leather girdle, and he ate these wild, wild locusts and wild honey. But you know what was crazier than that? He rebuked those that were considered the most reverent of the day. Now you think about a guy, he comes to town, he's dirty, he's wearing these different clothes. And here comes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're wearing robes. And we know in the Old Testament, it told them how to sew those robes. It told them what the hems needed to look like, what color of thread to use. And they come down there, and they're wearing these things. And they're very pious, and they don't like what they're seeing. And I'm sure they really didn't like what they heard, did they? Can you imagine someone doing that today? Can you imagine somebody being down at the cow tank, baptizing a family, and here comes the elders of the church, and someone says, you're a bunch of vipers. That's what he did. That's what he did. And so at that point in time, when they were looking at him, and they weren't paying attention to what was going on, they saw prophecy being fulfilled in front of them, and yet they were against John and against what he was doing so he might have seemed like somebody out of control 
Somebody that was trying to cause trouble. Somebody that was not what they should be. And yet we know he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ himself. He was a cousin. He was born first. We know that later on, after he got things rolling and he was teaching people about the Lord, that he said, I must become the less that he might become the more. Was he arrogant in these things? I'm sure there were people that thought he was very arrogant when he said things against those that were supposed to be very religious. But as time wore on, he humbled himself and he allowed himself to take the back seat to Jesus just like it had been prophesied. You see, John would have just been a wild man from the desert without the hand of God. Without Jesus coming to the earth. What about the Samaritan at the well? This is a woman who had five husbands and was living with another. In John 4 and verse 6, it says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings, with the Samaritans. So here's this lady, she goes to draw water, and here's this man, Jesus, and he says, Give me some water to drink. And she says, Whoa, you guys don't have anything to do with us. You don't even recognize we exist. Why would you ask me for a drink of water? And so it goes on in verse 16 Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. And the woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She couldn't believe that he knew all this about her. She'd never seen him before. And he knew personal things about her that maybe many didn't know. But as we go down to verse 28, it says, The woman then left her water pot, and she went her way into the city. And she saith to the, man, the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city, and they came to him. Now I find it interesting that she went to the city, and she went to the men. That would have been backwards, wouldn't it? Because men and women didn't necessarily hang in the same circle during work hours. Women had, had chores to do that were defined. And men had work to do that was defined as well. And they didn't really mingle that much. When they took their breaks, they were in different locations. And here she goes to the men and she says, Man, this guy is the real deal. He's real. He told me everything I ever did. He's got to be the Christ. And then in verse 39 it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that I ever I did. Because of her testimony, they went to see Jesus. They left the city, they went out to find Jesus, and they wanted to know what was going on. 
says, So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now these people were looked at as outcasts by the religious folks, the Jews. They were not known to be highly religious people. And yet they knew the prophecy of Christ. They recognized that he was doing things that regular men could not do. And because of this woman's tale that she went and told in town, which was true, not a tale but an act, these people came and they believed on Jesus you see, she was just a woman that had had five husbands and was living with another guy. But Jesus used that in order to be able to have a conversation with a bunch of people that would not have imagined that he would want to talk to them. And he spent two days somewhere that his own people would not spend. You think Jesus can make a difference? Do you think he wanted to seek and save the lost? He used the Samaritan woman at the well. What about Saul of Tarsus? We know that he was a persecutor of the believers. In Acts 8, in verse three, first, three, uh, first three verses, it says, And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death, and at that time there was great, a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women. He committed them to prison. When the apostle Paul was not the apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, he was destroying all that he could, wherever he could. He wanted letters to go further out and he wanted to imprison people. He submitted to the stoning of Stephen and his death. There were people whipped, beat, killed, families separated because of the will of Paul or Saul at that time. Many bad things happened. And yet when you and I open the Bible... And we look at this New Testament, we see that he wrote a lot of it. A lot of the teachings that we go by and that instruct us and in how to do the things we should do for God and be the Christians that we should be, the Apostle Paul was the guy that wrote a lot of that with God working through him. You see, Paul's determination and his zeal to serve God was out of focus, wasn't it? He was doing what he thought was right for God, and it was not right. was not at all. But his dedication to the cause was extreme, whatever it took. And so when he was on the road to Damascus and he came in contact with God, we know that he made a change overnight, just like that. And his zeal stayed the same. But his focus was different. And his way of going about getting the truth into people's hands and into their minds and into their hearts was different, wasn't it? 
He wasn't chaining them up and saying, you're going to listen to me, you're going to obey the gospel. No, not at all. He spent the rest of his life trying to make up for those things that he could not forget. He could be forgiven and he knew he was, but he mentioned them time and time again. They were on his mind and they were on his heart. The damage that he had caused God's church. The damage he had caused his fellow Christians. I want you to think this morning, if the Apostle Paul were still alive today and he were to walk in here and sit on a pew and someone here's family had been murdered or put into prison and separated by him, how easy would it be to sit here? How easy would it be to be in that chair and not get up and move? Especially right after he was converted. Now we know that wasn't in the church, it was in the temple, and I don't want to get ahead of myself and miscalculate everything. But Paul lived for God the rest of his life. You see, he was, a, he was an ordinary man with a great zeal. And he wanted to create a lot of good. But in the process of that, he created a lot of bad. He created a lot of hardship. He hurt a lot of people. He even had people killed. He had them put in prison where they were whipped and beat and tortured. Not exactly the guy you'd want to sit on the pew with after knowing all that. Make you a little nervous, wouldn't it? You ever had a murderer come to church? We have, actually. We had a guy come to our church, and he went to church there for quite a while. He lived with his grandmother, and she wouldn't get him drug money one day. She wouldn't borrow the money at the, at the bank. So she finally went down to ask for a loan because he told her he was going to kill her if she didn't. Well, she didn't have anything. They wouldn't loan her any money. So he took her home and he beat her to death with a baseball bat. He drug her out into the garage and he covered her up with some sheetrock, took the bulb out where there was no lights and locked the garage door. And you know, our elders found her. I don't remember how many days later, but it was quite a few days she hadn't been to church. Nobody could get her on a phone. And he had went so far as to go down and rent a carpet shampoo and clean up the mess where he'd killed her. And he was sitting at the pew at church with us. And we didn't know it. He'd come to church twice after he did that to his own grandmother. Do you think anybody wanted to sit near him when they found that out? Didn't have to because he ran for it. And they caught him in Indiana or somewhere, and he, he had killed two other people. And so he, as far as I know, he's in prison. But you know, I can remember my aunt talking about she wanted to put bars on the windows. He'd been to her house to help do some work around there, and she paid him a little money because he was out of money. She was scared to death. She said, I need to get a dog. They said, well, you can't get a dog. She said, you're right, I'm scared of dogs. I can't have a dog. She said, but I need bars on my windows. I said, well, okay, we can, we can install bars. And she said, well, but then I'm afraid there'll be a fire and I won't be able to get out. She didn't know what to do. But she knew she didn't want him anywhere near her house or her or the church or any place. She was scared to death. You know, I was in junior high when that happened. And I can remember it like it was today. If I saw that guy on the street, I would know who he was. His face is burned in my mind. Because that was traumatic. 
Think about Saul becoming Paul and then sitting on a pew with you. God can change the worst thing possible into something better. So what do God's champions look like? A fam- Jacob, a family full of violence and heartache. Rahab the harlot, a life filled with danger and degradation and poor in spirit. Zacchaeus, a rich tax tax collector who was accused of being nothing but a sinner. The woman caught in adultery. A thief stealing the life from a family. Simon the sorcerer, one who used mysticism to beguile others, tricked people into thinking he was from God when he wasn't. John the Baptist, Seemed like a wild man all the way through. Wore different clothes, lived in different places, didn't even eat regular food. And he he rebuked religious leaders of the day. Just a rebel. Samaritan woman at the well. She was a user of men for pleasure. And again, I think I have some bias in that. I don't know that I could prove that. That may not be worded right. But we know that she had had five husbands and she was living with a man. She had not had good luck as far as a family. Saul of Tarsus, we've already mentioned, an enemy of the church and a murderer. And I left out Matthew. What do God's champions look like? Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 6 for just a moment and we'll wrap this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse, let's, uh, let's just start in uh, verse 9. It says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this morning, as you sit in these pews, if you think about these things, I want you to consider the things in your own life. The things that have beguiled you in your life, the things that have drug you away from God and closer to Satan, the things that you have allowed to happen over time. You see, Paul said, such were some of you. And there's not a person in here that doesn't have something that they've done in their life that they regret. Not a person here that doesn't have a regret at all. Some of us got a a closet as big as this auditorium of skeletons and some of us maybe we just have a little jewelry box of skeletons but we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God haven't we every last one of us God says if you deny that you're a liar and the truth is not in you but what you can count on is that God can make you one of his champions 
irregardless of what has happened in your life, irregardless of your family situation. You know, I know men that have become great men in the church. One of them grew up throwing tires off of overpasses onto the windshields of cars for fun. Great man does a lot of good for the church today. I know a guy that is one of my favorite speakers. He's not from our congregation. He told me one time him and his, and his spouse got so tied up in cocaine, they didn't eat for three days, no food, lived on cocaine. And today the man gives some of the most amazing lessons I've ever heard. Why would I bring those things up to you? Because just like back here when all of this was happening, it happens today, doesn't it? It happens today in Wheeler, Texas. It happens today in Plainview, Texas, Amarillo, the entire world. These kind of things are going on. You know what makes these things change and turn? Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he has asked you and I this morning to be one of his champions. He says, such were some of you. You're not these things anymore. He says, now you're a soldier for the cause of Christ. He's given you a book to live by. He's given you the word of God to share with others. And he said, hey, can you go out and do this for me? Can you let the world know that I came to seek and to save the lost? I want to ask you this morning, are you helping those that you feel like are in danger of being lost? Are you sharing God's word with them? Maybe you feel like maybe you're in danger of being lost by something that's going on in your life right now. Maybe your name could be right on this list. And you haven't allowed Jesus into your life in a way that he can help you to be such were some of you but you are washed, you are clean, you are justified. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.